I'm Tanvi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanvi Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both virtual and in-person settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. To find out how we can help you today with your leadership challenges and discover your untapped opportunities, visit our website at tanvinasir.com. And now, let's meet my guest for this episode, Dr. Marlette Jackson. Why is it that we are so stuck on cultural fit, right? For companies, one of the biggest drivers is return on investment, key financial performance indicators. Why do you want someone who kind of fits into your mold? What you want is a culture ad. You want someone who is going to be different, who's going to be innovative, who's going to come from a different perspective and help drive productivity because they're looking at this from a different angle. So you shouldn't be trying to maintain the status quo by finding someone who can fit with what you're doing. You want someone who can do better. For the last several years, there has been a growing focus by organizations to address diversity and inclusion. And while there are numerous studies that have conclusively proven the strategic and financial benefits of embracing a more diverse workforce and work environment, today's organizations continue to lag in creating any significant and meaningful changes, especially when it comes to increasing the number of visible minorities and women included in their leadership ranks. So if there's a clear business case for increasing diversity within the workplace and leadership ranks, Why is there so little traction being made on this? And more importantly, what can leaders do to facilitate this? That's what I'll be asking my guest, Dr. Marlette Jackson. Marlette is a researcher, educator, and cross-functional leader with over eight years experience building and scaling DEI initiatives. Marlette currently serves as the Global Director of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Virgin Pulse, a role in which she's responsible for building processes, policies, and programs to attract, develop, and retain the best talent from all backgrounds for Virgin Pulse globally. Marlette holds a PhD in political science from Stanford University and has published work on equity, diversity, and social justice in the Harvard Business Review and Forbes, as well as being featured on Business Insider and the Associated Press. Hi, Marlette. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Marlette, before we start, I have to tell you how excited I am to have this conversation with you on my podcast, discussing the critical need for greater diversity and inclusion in today's organizations, not just within the workforce, but more importantly, at the senior levels of leadership is something I've been wanting to discuss on my show. And I'm so grateful to be able to speak with an expert like yourself on this subject, as I know I'm going to learn as much as my listeners will on this important leadership issue. Yeah, I think it's an important conversation, and I'm glad we're having it. And I'm what I'm hoping is that this dialogue um, translates into action. So I'm ready for it. Great. And I completely agree with you, Marlette. Now, I'd like to start our conversation by talking about an article you wrote for the Harvard Business Review titled, Woke Washing Your Company Won't Cut It where you point out how after the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, many companies focused most of their efforts on putting out statements in support of racial justice instead of taking an honest look at how they treat visible minorities within their company. 
And this has naturally led to many employees calling out the hypocrisy of these organizations where outwardly they say they are in favor of racial equality and diversity, and yet the makeup of their workforce and leadership, not to mention the work experiences of racialized employees, paints a different picture. To be clear, while it is important for leaders and their organizations to speak out on such issues, especially as consumers become more critical of a company's stance on environmental and social issues, we do have to recognize this is just the starting point. So for those leaders who realize they need to do more than issuing statements, what measures should they be contemplating and putting into action next so that they become genuine advocates and workplaces that embrace diversity and inclusion? Thank you for that question. I think one of the first things that organizations need to do is they need to think about organizational accountability. And that means leveraging data to create a data-driven action plan. And what's really important here is before you can even start to think about what is the plan or course of action that I need to take, you need to incorporate employee voice and you need to make sure that you co-create with your employees to understand what the path forward looks like. And in order to do that, you need to understand what your current scope and, and um, the reality is at your organization. So I think one of the first things companies have to do is do an audit, do some engagement surveys, do some focus groups. And as they're doing this, they need to make sure that they're incorporating every type of employee voice. Oftentimes, when we think about data-driven initiatives for diversity, equity, and inclusion, what often gets lost are folks at the various intersections, right? Because often we don't have large numbers of, say, women of color or, say, trans folks of color in our organizations. So by combining qualitative interview methodologies like focus groups or interviews, one-on-ones, you can still have their perspective represented and hopefully as equally weighted as the quantitative data that you are collecting. So after you've kind of done that, I think it's important to also think about, well, as we're outlining our goals based on this data that we've collected, how do we incorporate and bring in employees to understanding and co-creating what those next goals look like? And it's also about having some leadership accountability when it comes to those outcomes. For example, many companies are requiring policies like a diverse slate approach to hiring, which means that you make sure among the list of qualified candidates that you have folks who come from a variety of different backgrounds, particularly BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, people of color, and women, right? Lots of companies are also starting to make sure that you um, have, you're implementing DEI into your performance management process. So having questions at the performance review stage that ask, what are you doing to contribute to a more inclusive environment? What are you doing as people managers to diversify your team, right? This type of accountability has to be embedded in all of our people processes, and it has to be a leadership accountability scorecard for our people managers. Then you have companies that are also making sure that executive compensation, so at the CEO, CFO, CMO level, are also tied to these different, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion outcomes. So then first of all, it's organizational accountability, which means serving your folks, making them and helping, uh, helping them be involved in the co-creation process, as well as embedding it into your people processes and holding folks accountable. It's also thinking about individual level accountability and building in the tools of empowerment. So for example, education is a must. How are employees supposed to know how to create a more inclusive environment unless you provide them with the tools to empower them to do so? 
So DEI trainings, workshops, creating different sponsorship programs for your minoritized talent, mentorship programs, embedding a lot of the DEI functions into the business, right? Leveraging your employee resource groups, doing things like that will help drive this fact that diversity, equity, and inclusion is not siloed. It is literally a part of our organizational infrastructure. And continuously doing regular pulse checking, pulse checks on your employees to see, is this working? And are we creating a culture of psychological safety? So are we making sure that folks feel they can take risks, they can make mistakes, and that they can voice their opinion without being penalized? I love it. You've given me so many avenues to explore here in our conversation, Marlette. But I'd like to start off with the point you made about hiring as there was a piece in the New York Times written by former Goldman Sachs executive Edith Cooper, who currently serves on the boards of Amazon and PepsiCo. And she shares an encounter she had with a 60-plus old white male where he complained how he was unlikely to now get a board appointee because there's this growing focus on appointing women and visible minorities. And how she, being a black woman, was lucky she had all these advantages. And as Ms. Cooper points out, a sad truth that many women and visible minorities have had to deal with, and that is to hire them for a senior leadership position somehow implies a lowering of the bar, because otherwise we'd go with a white man. Even worse is the underlying message this man was telling her that he couldn't believe he was losing out to a woman and a black woman at that. And I've seen these kinds of comments all the time on LinkedIn, typically by white men who argue that companies should only hire the best person or someone who's the right cultural fit for the organization, which again implies that the only reason why you don't see more senior women leaders or senior leaders from various minority groups is because they aren't as capable. And you actually touch on some of this in another article you wrote for HBR called Does Your Definition of Leadership Exclude Women of Color? And I was wondering if you could share some points on what can be done to change this narrative where we help educate people. So we're not just giving lip service to notions of diversity and inclusion in our workplace and especially in leadership roles. Oh, this one touches particularly close to home. (laughs) Um, I had a feeling it would, Marlett, which is why I wanted to explore this issue with you. I think the first thing is dispelling these myths. Um, First of all, having there for folks to think that the best qualified candidate is, you know, mutually exclusive for someone who comes from a, and I use the term minoritized, um, and I use the term minoritized because it's an example of system-centered language. And system-centered language, I learned about this from Dr. Megan O'Reilly, is language that places the emphasis not necessarily on the individual who is on the receiving end of oppression, but on the system that is making that individual be minoritized. So I say minoritized instead of minority. But for me, um, a lot of this is about why is it that these folks who come from these backgrounds are not seen as the best or most qualified candidates? And why is it that we are so stuck on cultural fit, right? For companies, one of the biggest drivers is return on investment, key financial performance indicators. Why do you want someone who kind of fits into your mold? What you want is a culture 
add. You want someone who is going to be different, who's going to be innovative, who's going to come from a different perspective and help drive productivity because they're looking at this from a different angle. So you shouldn't be trying to maintain the status quo by finding someone who can fit with what you're doing. You want someone who can do better. And so for me, it's like, why? Let, let's change the goalposts here, right? Instead of culture fits, we a culture add. And then one of the biggest um, myths about things like diverse slate or hiring folks who come from different backgrounds, particularly folks of various intersections like women of color, is that they have this quote unquote unfair advantage. And I loved um, reading this one piece that I, that I saw that said that women and black indigenous people of color collectively outnumber the number of white men in the workforce. Also, and I'm not saying that job degrees and positions should be the main you know, marker of getting a job, but since more women than men graduate from college, there's no reason to assume that a non-white man be considered for a position is less qualified than a white man, or that women or BIPOC folks will somehow be getting an unfair advantage if they're considered for jobs in greater numbers, because collectively they represent greater numbers. Also, Black women in the United States are the most educated group there is in the United States. So when it comes to this kind of myth of an unfair advantage, that's just quite simply not true. We also know that, for example, Black and Hispanic computer scientists and computer engineers graduate from top universities at twice the rate that leading technology companies hire them. So when it comes to, oh, they're getting unfair advantage, actually they're not. For the rate at which they're graduating, for the rate at which they're coming into the workforce, we're not seeing them represented barely in the workforce, but definitely not at the senior levels of leadership. And so for me, it's about let's dispel, dispel these myths that there's somehow an advantage when there's not, and that there's somehow, you know, on the receiving end of it, when there have been several studies that have shown that people of color, BIPOC folks, women, consistently are being discriminated against in the hiring stage. We've seen all of these, you know, different, um, the Lakeisha versus Jamal, the Emily versus Greg, um, different experiments where all you do is change the name of the person and that affects the likelihood that someone's gonna call them back. And it also happens related to class. There was a Yale study that found that all a um, hiring manager had to do was listen to the voice of someone, they were able to ascertain what social class they felt they came from. And then from there, they gave folks they thought came from a higher class, they were more likely to get the job and they were also more likely to get higher pay. And so that all comes and connects to the piece that to address this, we have to consider how our current ideas of leadership ignore the value that folks who come from minoritized backgrounds bring to business because our current conceptualization of leadership and fit is built upon things that are very Western, things that are very Eurocentric, things that are very heteronormative. And we have to expand things that are very masculine. And we have to expand that notion of leadership to be able to see other folks who demonstrate other types of leadership, but they also can do the work. And so that piece you talked about, about women of color, I talk about how oftentimes women of color bring a lot of cultural capital to the workplace. Cultural capital being the different um, types of um, experiences, values, 
that they get from coming from their backgrounds that add immense value to the workplace. One of the individuals we interviewed, she was an Iranian immigrant. And growing up in that type of background and place, she grew accustomed to challenging systems, challenging governance. She brings that work with her currently in the work that she does with talent acquisition and people management and has been able to transform that kind of notion of challenging um, in society to challenging in the workplace and pushing back against these narrow perceptions of fit and narrow perceptions of leadership. Also through her being a person who doesn't have an Ivy League background, a person who is an immigrant, she's able to role model that other types of leadership can be just as successful. And so we need to reconsider who we think fits and who we think should be a leader to allow other folks, we need to expand that to allow other folks in the mold so that we can see and reap the benefits in business that we're shortcoming our own selves because we're not opening it up to other folks. So Marlene, a few weeks ago, I watched the movie One Night in Miami, which is a fictionalized recounting of a night in 1964 where Muhammad Ali, R&B singer Sam Cooke, NFL star Jim Brown and Malcolm X got together to hang out in a Miami hotel room. And there's a scene in the movie where Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke are sitting in Sam's car talking about how all four of these black men have access to opportunities that other black people in America didn't have. And Muhammad Ali has this fantastic line where he says, power just means a world where we're safe to be ourselves, to look like we want, to think like we want without having to answer to anybody for it. And I love this line because it offers a different take on how we should think of power, especially in this context of diversity and inclusion. I mean, we're all familiar with this idea that diversity and inclusion efforts are about giving women and visible minority groups a seat at the table. And invariably, this creates this zero-sum game mindset, like what Ms. Cooper shared in her encounter with her colleague, where for you to get a seat at the table, someone has to give up theirs. But what this quote illustrates is that what we're talking about here is not you giving up your seat. Rather, it's about allowing us to make space at the table for us to bring our own chair to the table, that we're not having to change ourselves to fit in, to feel like we belong and deserve to be there, but that you're creating space to allow those with different voices and experiences to not only be heard, but to be a part of the decision-making process so that we have some real skin in the game beyond basic needs. You know, I, that I haven't seen the movie, but now with that quote, I know I need to. <laughs> oh, you should. It's a fantastic film with some really powerful moments. And um, what that really sticks out to me, resonates with me. I was, um, I can't recall the name of the person right now, but I was listening to a talk and um, she was the author of this book. And she said, um, part of what this work is, is in dismantling these structures and these systems and trying to create new ones is sometimes I don't even want to sit at the table. I want to go and create my own other house. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> um, you know, for, for some folks, it's like, if you're going to exclude me from this table, why don't I just go create a whole nother house somewhere else? And then, you know, be able to show you that all of the things that we could have done together had you not excluded me. And what also was really powerful from what you said was about wanting to just bring my own seat to the table and be my kind of full self. And I, you know, for a while was just this huge proponent of like, I just want everyone to bring their full authentic self. And so I thought a little bit about it and I was like, but if everyone were to bring their full authentic self to the workplace, how would that be perceived? And how is bringing your full authentic self also partly, um, 
having to do with some of the privileged identities that folks have versus the non-privileged identities that other folks don't have, right? Bringing your full authentic self um, suggests that we currently have an environment or a workplace that is open to various different parts of individuals' personalities, lived experiences, um, and a variety of things that I don't think that we're there yet. And also, there are some people whose full authentic selves we probably, we probably don't want to see. <laughs> it's kind of like, bring your best self to work, right? Because we don't want to see um, the authenticity that is negative, that is derogatory, that is oppressive in nature, right? And so I think part of it is we have to do the work, before we can ask folks to bring our authentic selves to work, we have to do the work to create an environment where they can. And then also part of it is, when it comes to bringing your full authentic self, there are certain privileged identities that make it a lot more accessible than others. Let's take, for example, our folks who identify as part of the trans community. Them bringing their full authentic selves can be very, very dangerous um, for their health, for their safety, um, physically, mentally. And so I think we have to do the work before we ask that of someone else to make sure that the environments that we're creating are such that we really mean when we say bring, our, bring your full authentic self. But until then, please bring your best self to work. <laughs> Absolutely. 100% agree with you. So given this shift in our understanding of power and inclusion, Marlette, what are some things that organizations and their leadership could do to foster a workplace environment and culture that supports and encourages visible minority and disability groups to access their power for the mutual benefit of the organization as well as the employee? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think some of the things that companies and, and cultures can do is the first thing to do is embed diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice into your um, organizational infrastructure. It needs to be weaved into the fabric of your organizational culture. It has to be a core value, not a priority. It has to be weaved into the values that you have because your values and your vision and your mission are what drive the business and diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice then need to be a part of that in order to be fully integrated and to fully impact organization in the ways that it can and should. So the first thing is like, uh, don't make it a top 10 priority because often it'll be number 10 and we'll say, we didn't get to these priorities this year, but we can go next year, right? No, it needs to be a business goal just like every other goal is. Oftentimes, executives will say, you know, well, we didn't get where we wanted to go with minoritized communities, but we were 40% women now. And it's like, if this was your revenue goals and your revenue goal was $50 million and you only got $25 million, would you have that same type of <laughs> feedback? Oh, well, we didn't get the full 50, but we got 25. No, you would hold yourself accountable to getting that full 50. And so the same thing here, hold yourself accountable for just as you get women in the workplace, you need to get BIPOC folks there too, right? It's not just going to be a, we, we kind of did it. No, it needs to be also a business school that we take just as seriously. I think part of it also is making sure that leaders are held accountable. And so kind of talking when I talk, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier, where senior executive compensation is tied to a leadership accountability scorecard. Now on the scorecard of things like 360 reviews. What are your direct reports saying about you? Are they saying that you're fostering a direct, you know, an inclusive culture? What is your team diversity looking like? Have you increased it from year to year? Is it staying stagnant? Is it, you know, kind of going in the in the backwards direction? Like what is going on there? 
what are you doing in terms of promoting the different diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at your organization? Are you showing up? Are you participating? Are you an executive sponsor to an employee resource group? Are you a, um, a mentor to folks who come from different backgrounds at your company? What are you doing to showcase to the organization that at a senior level, this is important and this is a priority? What are you being held accountable to? I think another thing is embedding in your policies and processes like we talked about earlier for when it comes to recruiting and hiring, making sure you have a diverse candidate slate, making it mandatory. When it comes to promotions and when it comes to performance management, every person in the company should have to answer questions about how are they contributing to a more inclusive environment. People managers need to be answering questions about how are they contributing to the psychological safety of their team, the inclusiveness of their team, the diversity of their team. It needs to be embedded in total rewards. It needs to be embedded in HR. It needs to be embedded in every single thing that we do so we know it's a part and core of kind of what we are and who we do. I hope that answered your question. (laughs) Oh, it definitely answered my question. In fact, there's a question I now want to ask you about an issue that many leaders are currently focusing on as an area of concern because diversity and inclusion initiatives play a key role in addressing it. But before we get to it, Here's a message from our sponsor. If you're looking to build a profitable side hustle that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with Giant. If you don't already know, Giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years. They used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry Cloud, Malcolm Gladwell, and Simon Sinek were regular speakers and a lot more. They have over 500 coaches working in over 127 countries, and their coaches are being hired by companies like Pfizer, Chick-fil-A, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. Giant literally gives you everything you need to start your own leadership coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on free training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely. And you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business, even if you're just starting out. This workshop is 100% free, and you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv slash Tanvir. If you're ready to impact people and get paid to do it, go to giant.tv slash Tanvir. Now, Marlette, there's been numerous studies and white papers released that have conclusively shown how increasing diversity in the workplace and in leadership circles leads to greater productivity, market share, and revenue growth. But one thing I found that was an interesting finding is how promoting real diversity and inclusion efforts also improves employee mental health and well-being. Now, I could tell you over the past several months in speaking with leaders across Europe and North America and a wide range of industries, there is definitely a growing concern about employee well-being and burnout. So this would certainly be another solid reason for why leaders in the organization should get more intentional and less superficial about their DEI initiatives. But I'm wondering if you could share how diversity and inclusion improves employee mental health. That's a really great question. You know, there's often a business case for diversity, a moral case, a legal case. And I don't think we often talk as much about the well-being case for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and social justice. But it's just as important, if not more important to many folks. 
you know, we know from research that people who feel employees who feel included have 19% greater well-being in their lives, and that employees who feel valued are more likely to report better physical and mental health. And we also know that folks who report being excluded or ostracized from work are more likely to have a lower sense of belonging, lower physical health, mental health, and also lower organizational commitment. And then when we think about all of the societal level issues that have gone on, not only in the past couple of years, but for the history of the United States, we have to understand that navigating all of this takes a toll on an employee's mental and, and physical well-being. That cannot be divorced from their performance in the workplace. And we know this from research, right? There was a really interesting study that found that for um, folks, for folks who identify as Black Americans, the um, unarmed shooting of a Black person by police resulted in po more poor um, mental health days and outcomes over the course of time, which means that your Black employees, when they are consistently seeing folks, part of their community and folks who look like them, gunned down and murdered by police officers, that takes a toll on their mental health. Then being expected to show up, right, as their full self, their best self, their authentic self in the workplace, that's going to have an effect. So as a company, as an employer, you need to understand that and you need to put measures and mechanisms in place that can accommodate that there are things outside of the workplace that we need to be aware of and we need to make sure that we're putting mechanisms in place to support our employees. Also, when we think about stop Asian hate, individuals who are the kind of who are, who are navigating these challenges are also reporting lower mental health. And so we have to think about what are the societal level factors that are contributing to employee well-being and what can a company do to mitigate that. One of the things that I was really proud that we were able to do um, at my current employer was we created this thing called the gathering space. And we um, invited in Dr. Megan O'Reilly, who is who has a really nice um, way to combine diversity, equity, and inclusion work with her background in psychology. And she went through this month-long process for some of our Black, Black identifying employees to talk about everything from Black joy to Black trauma to resistance to um, mental health and well-being to very tangible strategies to help navigate this very um, interesting and unique time in our country's history. And it was a beautiful connection about how when you infuse DEI into employee well-being work, you can get some amazing outcomes. Folks left those sessions feeling like I am heard, I am seen, I am valued, and my employer is putting resources to understand that I'm navigating things much greater than the company and that I need support in order to do my best work. I find there's an interesting contradiction in most workplaces today where it comes to diversity and inclusion initiatives, where on the one hand, people want to work for a company that's inclusive and welcoming. And yet when it comes to providing education to help people understand what can they do to facilitate that kind of workplace environment? There's this tendency to think, well, I'm not a racist. I don't discriminate. So this doesn't apply to me. In fact, I read an interview with the CEO of One Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Training Firm who pointed out how most people think they don't need diversity training so they don't pay attention and retain the information and tools that are being discussed. Now, before we discuss this at the institutional level, 
What are some things people should be mindful of to make sure their biases and blind spots are not adversely impacting their ability to connect, see, and understand their colleagues? What are some things that people can do to ensure they're having more inclusive conversations where they're making sure they're getting outside of their own perceptions and perspectives so they can empathize and understand the perspectives of those who have a different experience from theirs? I think one of the first things you have to do is before you can address, you know, kind of your biases, you have to understand what they are. There's been research that has shown it's usually the people who think that they're the least biased that are the most biased. <laughs> and so the first step is just understanding what, what you can do. And I know that there have been many um, kind of criticisms, but a first step is potentially taking the imposted association test um, by a couple of different uh, Harvard and other um, kind of researchers. Because then you can have an understanding of, well, I have a bias against this demographic or that demographic or that demographic. And once you have that information and that knowledge, then you can say, okay, what are the resources that I can do in order to understand the root of those biases and what I can do to mitigate the likelihood that they're going to affect how I work and how I show up? Because the fact of the matter is that we all have unconscious biases, every single one of us, including people who do work like me in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why? Because we're human. And it's literally unconscious bias, the mental shortcut that our brains do subconsciously to quickly process information, but it's based on different types of cultural stereotypes. And that comes from our society. So the first thing is acknowledging that we all have bias testing to see which type of biases you have, even though we all have biases about everything. And then thinking about what are the resources I can do to understand these biases and to mitigate their effect. There are several different, and you know, you might be a learner who likes videos, you might be a learner who likes to read. There are several different mediums you can go through to understand whether it's podcasts or TED Talks or books or articles, find whichever medium is most appealing to you and then do a deep dive into understanding the root of these biases and things you can do to mitigate their likelihood that it affects how you show up in the workplace. So I think part of it is a self journey, um, so a learning journey of discovery, exploration, but also openness to understanding that you're human. And part of it is understanding what biases you have, strategies, but also understanding that your biases have negative impacts for others. So you have a personal responsibility to remedy that. Absolutely. Now, Marlette, I know through your work at Virgin Pulse, you also focus on making diversity and inclusion a true element of an organization's culture and not just a pithy statement. So we already discussed from an individual level we can do, but what are some of the ways leaders can make this an integral part of their workplace and organizational culture so it becomes a genuine part of who the organization as a whole is and how they treat people both within and outside the organization? I think that's a great question. One of the things that we really recently did that I was super proud of was um, typically for different cultural heritage months, right? Um, November was one of the um, observances was Native American and Alaska Native Heritage Month. So what we did was we typically have a couple of different events. We invited some speakers. We paid these speakers <laughs> who came, um, who identified um, from a variety of different um, indigenous groups and tribes. And they talked to us and they educated a lot of us on things ranging from what blood quantum is to understanding um, what Turtle Island is to just kind of like what social justice has meant as it relates to indigenous communities in the U.S., right? And a part of that was we figured there was something missing. 
it's great to get some education. It's great to have external speakers, but what are we really doing with that information? So we instituted a call to action program whereby um, part of our platform allows us to kind of transition um, pulse points into pulse cash. And with that pulse cash, we can purchase things. Um, and so what we did was we challenged some of our, we challenged our employees to say, hey, during this Native American and Alaska Native Heritage Month, why don't you channel some of the pulse cash you have based on off of our platform into charity on top, which we partner with? And why don't you donate some of your pulse cash to different organizations that support Native American and Alaska Native employees, I mean, um, communities. And we had some people who did that. And so it's about understanding that a lot of the work when it comes to employee well-being has been focused on the individual, but there has been science that has shown that happiness and greater well-being also comes from impacting the greater community and being the person to do things that can impact something greater or bigger than yourself. And so by using that to kind of inform this type of campaign, we were saying, why don't we use the resources we have within our sphere of influence to impact communities that we're celebrating this month by putting some money behind it. Another couple of things that we did um, for, for Juneteenth was we had a series of employees who identified as um, Black identifying and also a part of our Black organizers, leaders, and doers, employee resource group, we call them employee impact groups. Um, they did different um, interviews about what Juneteenth meant to them, how they learned about Juneteenth, how they honor the observance, um, and provided some strategies for others to do so. And then we donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, and so for, for us, it's about connecting to build culture, you have to build human connections. And that can be done with education and skill building. That can be done with employee storytelling. It can also be done with understanding that employee well-being and health and happiness also can be something greater than you. And taking um, the work that we do and things we can have within our sphere of influence to impact other communities outside of our organization. So those are some of the things that we've been able to do to kind of build a greater culture and also greater accountability about now that we have this knowledge, what do we do with it? So Marlette, I know we've covered a lot of ground here, and I know you know from your work that this is an ongoing challenge for leaders and their organizations. So I was wondering if you could give some advice here for those who want to take action now on addressing this issue on how to start having that conversation. Because this isn't an all-hands-on-deck meeting you have once and then move on to the other things that you spend most of your work week focusing on. Instead, this is a long-term, ongoing discussion and process. So how can leaders or even employees start this conversation in their organization? And what guideposts can you suggest to help them stay the course? So I think they need to understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion work is an evolution in and of itself. And that they're, um, I follow a model of four different phases. And the first kind of phase is, you know, cultural celebrate, you know, celebrations, heritage months, you know, networking, things of that nature, right? That's, that's kind of like the first phase. The second phase of different diversity, equity, inclusion efforts are like talent development, right? So the first phase is cultural awareness. The second is talent development. Are you mentoring and coaching? your um, employees from minoritized backgrounds, your visible minorities, your women? Is there skill development and education and learning for employees? Is there sharing across different affinity groups? Is there professional development and um, professional leadership opportunities for your minoritized talent? So after you go from cultural awareness to talent development, 
then you go into the trusted advisors phase, right? Where, you know, benchmarking your DEI efforts outside of the organization. What can you be doing better? What are you already doing excellent? Forming external alliances with professional organizations, embedding DEI into your policies and processes, embedding it into onboarding, into hiring, into recruitment, into learning and development, into talent and rewards, into retention efforts, into your exit survey, right? Into every single thing that you do. And then once you get there, phase four, viewing DEI as, you know, kind of, and the folks involved in as business advocates, how is it enhancing your organizational capabilities? How are you creating new products or services? How is it in brand, enhancing brand image? So soon leaders are like, we need to be you know, out there publishing like what we're doing and marketing what we're doing. That's phase four. You need to go through phases one through three before you can get to the, the, the place where you're doing that, right? Building community outreach programs, having a positive impact on the bottom line. But you have to build to that phase four. And that can be something like, um, this model that I'm, I'm talking about came from the Chief Diversity Officer of Clorox. And what they said was one of the things they did um, was for Burt's Bees, um, their pride employee resource group worked with them to create some particular packaging where they um, kind of put the different Burt's Bees in, in kind of relation to the pride flag. And then for Pride Month, they kind of marketed that, right? That's directly integrating DEI into products or services that not only is enhancing the bottom line, but showcasing that it matters to your company and to your community, right? I know that um, different organizations have had their employee impact groups helping with um, reviewing different documentation if you need um, need to translate it from different languages or helping with new products or doing um, folks from focus groups, right? But there's a map, a roadmap to get there. And like you said, it's an ongoing process that you need to do. And there are several things you can do along the way, but you have to know that there's always something else, something greater um, that you can do in order to get there. Wonderful. I think this will help a lot of leaders and employees understand that while there are barriers and obstacles in today's organizations towards achieving greater diversity and inclusion, they aren't so insurmountable or daunting that they can't be overcome if we put our heart and best efforts into making it a reality. Marlette, as I said at the start of our conversation, I've been wanting to have this conversation on my podcast for some time now, and I really appreciate being able to have it with you, as I do think you've inspired our listeners to embrace the abundance that sprouts when we embrace diversity and inclusion in our workplace and in our leadership ranks. As I said earlier on, this isn't about taking anything away from one group to give to another. Rather, it's simply about inviting others to pull up their own chair to the table to share their unique insights, experiences, and perspectives from which we will all benefit from. So thank you so much for coming onto my podcast to have this much-needed conversation, Marlette. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have on my podcast for some time now, as this is an issue every leader out there needs to address and know what to do. So I'm glad I got to start this conversation with someone as experienced and knowledgeable about this topic as Dr. Marla Jackson. But as I mentioned, this isn't a one-time conversation leaders need to have. But as Marlett pointed out, this is a conversation that needs to evolve over time as you start implementing various measures and practices to not only attract and retain visible minority employees, 
but to bring these groups into your leadership pipeline. That's why we have other diversity and inclusion experts lined up in our guest list to appear in future episodes of this podcast so we can explore other areas around this subject and really drive meaningful and sustainable action on this front. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Marlette's work, including getting links to her Harvard Business Review articles, as well as that piece I mentioned from former Goldman Sachs executive Edith Cooper, check out the show notes for this episode. And you can find a link to that, as well as the show notes for all past episodes, on our podcast page at tamvinasir.com slash LBC. And if this conversation gave you some food for thought, and I hope it did, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you can listen to our latest episodes when they come out, as well as listen to some of our past episodes where we explore other ideas and insights that will help you improve the way you lead. If you go to our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC, you'll find links to subscribe to our podcast on all the major streaming platforms, as well as links to our episode show notes. And before we wrap up here, I have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying my podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show that supports listener ratings and reviews. I'm Tavin Asir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.